Folks, I am thrilled to bring to you today uh, the first ever guest on the show. Um, this individual has been my hero for my entire life. Uh, he is my personal role model and the person I aspire to be like as I grow up. Um, he is none other than my own father, Matt Coots. Um, he is known by most people as Dr. Matt Coots because he is a professor at Florida International University. Um, he is a professor on athletic training and leadership and all the interplay between those, which is what we talk about today. But um, mostly we talk about leadership and why it's important and how anybody can be a leader. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I know that I really did. Um, so without further ado, let's get into it. So, uh, this is my dad, Dr. Matt Coots, and he is the first guest I've ever had on the show. So, I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and we're just going to get right into it. So, you are a professor, correct? Correct. And let How- me let me also thank you for having me on your show. I'm honored to be yes. your first guest. It I'm is excited. My, it is my pleasure. So, how long have you been a, a teacher, a professor? I started, I started an academic, and I started my first teaching job was in the year 2000, so I'm in my 21st year, 22nd year now of teaching. So what is it that you teach exactly? So I, it's kind of an interesting scenario because my, my education and training and, and background is in athletic training, so my, my degrees are in athletic training, exercise science. I later went on and got a PhD in global leadership, but... Before I actually got that PhD, I actually started teaching uh, with my with my master's degree. So I teach in an athletic training program, and I currently am a clinical professor uh, at Florida International University, and I teach in the Doctor of Athletic Training program, uh, which is a program uh, that's kind of unique. It's obviously an advanced practice a professional degree, so it's not a research-based degree, and as a professional degree, I get to teach some really interesting and fun things within the domain of athletic training. I particularly focus on areas of entrepreneurial and global leadership and, and specialize in how to get uh, credentialed and licensed athletic trainers into that space, so to speak, so the lo- global leadership, entrepreneurial, and then of course, a big part of my teaching load also has to do with uh, what we call our scholarship courses. Uh, because it's not a PhD program, we don't do a formal dissertation. Uh, so there aren't uh, research methods course per se, but obviously as a doctoral degree, there has to be some some scholarly rigor to the degree. So my, my focus is on uh, what's called applied scholarship courses, critical thinking, evidence-based practice, and of course, then those are filtered through the lens of global and entrepreneurial leadership. So, how exactly? Um, what's the I suppose? What's the difference between a doctoral or a PhD? Is there any difference between those? Yeah, there's a big difference actually, and and traditionally, when you think of a a doctor, so there's doctors who are physicians. 
you know, and those are medical doctors. And that's generally, generally when we think of, of doctors, that's what we think of medical physicians. Mm -hmm. uh, but the word doctor <clears throat> actually originates, it's a Latin word that means teacher. So anyone with a, doc, with a doctor of philosophy, for example, they get a Ph.D. And what a Ph.D. Uh, does and what a Ph.D. does, you, it prepares you to be a scholar in a particular discipline. And in that discipline, uh, there's a huge component or a huge part of that that uh, requires an original contribution to research or an original contribution to a body of knowledge. Uh, that advances in a particular discipline. So, for example, as an athletic trainer, I got my PhD in global leadership, and I wanted to tie that into my my profession. So, I specifically had to contribute uh, a significant body of original research to athletic training in the leadership space, so to speak, in the leadership theory space. And that's what I did. So that's what a PhD does. But if you're not getting a PhD and you're getting a clinical doctorate or a professional doctorate like an MD, a medical doctor, they don't do research like a PhD does. They have a clinical doctorate. So they have a clinical focus or a clinical expertise. So it's more applied. They are experts in practice, whereas a PhD is an expert in research. So an expert in practice would get a doctorate in medicine, a doctor of physical therapy, a doctor of audiology, uh, even juris doctors, which is law school. Even though they don't call lawyers doctors, they mm -hmm. do have a juris doctorate. They're <laughs> experts in the practice of law, but not in research per se. Yeah. So there is a big difference between a clinical or professional doctorate and a Ph.D. And you have two Ph.D.s, right? That's you have correct. Two, two Ph.D.s. So... So how does one tie in uh, leadership with athletic training? How did you do that? So that was an interesting thing because actually it was one of the biggest and most difficult decisions I made early in my career was when I decided to get a Ph.D., which is a whole story in and of itself because my wife, your mother, wasn't actually uh, – all on board with that because she couldn't see the value of it. You know, all she saw was the cost and the dollar signs of the PhD. And, and so that we worked through that. And now, of course, she's thrilled uh, with the decision and we both benefit from that greatly. But, you know, the, the question about, you know, how do you tie that in was a tough one because being in a clinical profession, you know, it's most athletic trainers get their PhDs in rehabilitation science. Mm or exercise physiology, or even curriculum and instruction if they want to go into the academic route and all that. So I had a very unique opportunity where I decided to get my Ph.D. in global leadership, and there's not an immediate tie-in to that. And I had early on, I had to do a lot of explaining uh, as to how I made it tie-in. But what I did to make it tie-in I actually looked at the leadership behaviors of athletic trainers. So, so how I contributed to original research to my discipline was I looked at a specific population of people. So instead of looking at leadership practices or leadership behaviors of anybody anywhere in any industry or any profession, I looked at the leadership behaviors and practices of athletic trainers within the context of their job. And then from that time, that... I actually sprang into quite a, a uh, 
a really neat and, and robust line of scholarship. So I've published, I don't know, 30 plus manuscripts, written five books um, on that topic and area. And, and that one area, because no one was doing it. So it truly was. What I've been very fortunate, very blessed, because I was able to pick an area of scholarship uh, that no one in my profession was doing. And because of that, it opened up many doors, many opportunities, and I became... Um, one of, I'm certainly not the, but one of the um, experts in leadership within the athletic training space. And of course, now that's uh, exploded and, and actually evolved into healthcare in general now. And I do a lot of healthcare uh, and even um, outside of athletic training now. So you mentioned that you wrote several books, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but you said something that was interesting that you looked specifically at the population of athletic trainers and how they are leaders and to my mind athletic training doesn't really pop the first thing that pops up there's not really a leader so what makes somebody a leader or not yeah that's a great question because that's also true in everybody else's mind uh, athletic trainer is not the first thing that pops up first profession that pops up when someone talks about leaders they think of entrepreneurs they think of ceos they think of a lot of other physicians you know they think of a lot of other professions uh, which is one of the reasons why i'm so passionate about this because and one of the reasons why there's such a dearth of information within athletic training in this space is because it's not a common assumption. So my job and part of my career has been to get even the athletic trainers themselves to think of themselves as leaders because they really don't. They think of themselves as clinicians first, and they are clinicians first, and they have to be excellent clinicians. I mean, no one's going to take any leadership behaviors you do seriously if you're not good at your job in the mm -hmm. first place. So being good at your job is a prerequisite um, for effective leadership. So, how so, would, real quick, how would you define a leader? What would so uh, so leadership? You know, is is when you influence someone to change or alter their their behaviors or to achieve common objectives. That's ultimately the outcome of what leadership is. And you know, you asked about well, what is it that makes someone a leader? Because athletic trainers aren't who you traditionally think of first. What makes someone a leader is their capacity and willingness to influence their environment. And, and that's where one of my books, Contextual Intelligence, comes into, comes into play, which we'll, I think we'll talk about in a minute. But bringing, influencing your environment is absolutely critical. And most of the time we think of leadership as influencing, um, or I'm sorry, as doing a specific task like budgeting or scheduling or setting an agenda or strategic planning. And we think of it in terms of competencies and tasks. And that's certainly part of what a leader does, but that's not what a leader is. A leader is, by definition, someone who influences their surroundings and environment regardless of what setting they're in. And I think that's important because a lot of times, especially in the athletic training space and healthcare space in general, we practice our leadership within the constructs or confines of our job or the con or what I like to say within the context of our job. So I practice and demonstrate my leadership behaviors within the certain uh, context of my work. But then when I'm outside the context of my work, I don't practice leadership anymore. And that's a particular issue that my research has talked about in athletic training. And one of the things uh, that I think is important for us to understand and for your listeners to understand 
anywhere, regardless of whatever job you're in, leadership is something that takes place uh, irrespective of that job. So yes, you're going to do it in your job because you might be required or asked to do it. But then you also, if you truly are what, what is called an ontological leader, which is a leader who is a leader because of it's their identity and purpose, it's who they are, then they're also going to practice leadership outside of their job. They're going to be a leader regardless of the context they're in because it's who they are and it's part of their identity. And that's so that's that's what uh, one thing. But then, so how do you do that though? How do you influence, you know, inside of work environment versus outside? Because it requires two completely different skill sets. Uh, within the work environment, it's easier to lead or manage, so to speak, because there's usually a transactional relationship there. I'm mm -hmm. paying you to do something yeah. or I'm being paid to do something. Mm -hmm. So I have to do it because it's my job um, and I can either be rewarded or punished for, for doing it well or not doing it well. Uh, but outside, so that's one thing. So because it's part of that and there are specific competencies, I have a job description, there are certain expectations that are clear as to what a leader would do, for example, uh, that's different typically outside of it. And that's why it's difficult to practice leadership outside of your role because the metrics for success or the rules for leading might be different outside of work than they are within work because the motivations are different, etc. So I have to develop a set of skills that work and are efficient and effective within the constructs of confines of my job. But then I also have to develop skills and abilities that are effective outside of the constructs of my job uh, where people don't have to do what I tell them to do because I'm not their boss anymore or because they're not being paid mm. or I can't discipline them or punish them. Now or reward them, now I have to have a different set of skills. And that's really what contextual intelligence is, which is one of the books that I've written. It's learning how to have the right leadership skills and behaviors in all the different contexts that we find ourselves because people need to be motivated differently in the different contexts that they're in. So again, for example, in the work context, I can go to someone and say, I want you to do uh, this thing and they know they have to do it because you know they're not going to get paid if they don't so the motivation mm -hmm. is is an extrinsic motivator whereas outside of work if i run into that same person or somebody else let's say we have uh, our kids play on the same baseball team together or something like that and we have a, a social connection as well and i ask them to do something they are not obligated to do it in that situation mm -hmm. because i'm not their boss anymore or not paying them now i have to have they have to have some other motivation mm. and that's called an intrinsic motivation so they have to want to do it because it's the right thing to do and i have to learn to tap into that so in work i learn to manage and use extrinsic motivation as well and hopefully intrinsic and then outside of work, I'm almost exclusively have to use extrin or intrinsic motivation to get people to do it. Those two things require completely different skill sets and a capacity that I call contextual intelligence. So by your definition of leadership, most of leadership is really about inspiring people to do something, not necessarily just telling them and having them do it because that is their job. You want to inspire people to act in the way that you desire. Correct. And that's the, the, the key there is the way you described it uh, 
pre first is that's management. So getting mm-hmm. and, and I do differentiate between management and leadership. So uh, now they're collect you know there's arguments and debates over how related they are and if they're the synonymous or not and all that and we won't we don't need to get into that. But how I classify it is when I'm doing asking someone to do something and they do it because they have to do it. That's management. Mm-hmm. And when I ask somebody to do something and they end up doing it because they know it's the right thing to do and they would do it on their own, I'm helping them see that direction and I'm influencing it. That's leadership. So a leader doesn't necessarily have to be an appointed position. Correct. Absolutely correct. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes made in society in general is we have this assumption or presumption that leadership is something uh, that is a result of a formal title, a formal role, or a formal position. And I completely disagree with that sentiment. So how do you help people realize that they can be a leader without being appointed? So also a great question. And that's a hard job. And that's a huge industry. A lot of people are trying to do that. And one thing, the way I do it is help people to see and realize you know, the, the philosophical value of leadership and the, the social the social value of leadership. And we really can't function. We really can't accomplish the things that we need to do as a community, as a neighborhood, as a country, as an organization, as a team, whatever that might be, unless we have people who understand and realize that they are a contributing member or contributing leader to the Uh, desired outcome. So I try to philosophically get them to understand the value of leadership and then help them manage and discover their own unique leadership gift mix, so to speak, or because everyone will add different things. Everyone adds different values, uh, has different skills because leadership is such an ambiguous term. There's so many things that constitute what leadership is and what leaders do. Because of that, not everyone uh, can be the perfect, complete leader. There's just, it's just too multifaceted to reside completely in one person. So you have to be build a team. Um, and this is important because um, I don't believe that every single person is a leader. Hmm. That was going to be my next question. But I do believe every single person can practice leadership. And, and that's that's important. Um, and I, I maybe we'll uncover that more if we have time. But I do think that's an important distinction to make here just real briefly is that every person can practice leadership and every person can practice leadership better than they currently are wherever they're at on the spectrum. If you're really, really good already, you can still get better because leadership is also uh, infinite in that sense, where there's there's not a finite end to leadership ability. Leadership capacity or leadership literacy can always be improved. So whether you're on the high end of the spectrum or the low end of the spectrum, you can always get better. But that doesn't mean that every single person is a leader in the sense of that ontological piece I was talking about a moment ago, where they believe in and of themselves and their identity and personhood is that of a leader. Not everybody has that or wants that. And if you don't want that, that's totally okay. Um, but you also, uh, but that doesn't mean you can't improve your leadership. And I, I go back to Paul in the New Testament when he wrote, uh, he wrote a letter to Timothy and he described one of the requirements. He's listing all the lists 
uh, behaviors that an elder in a church must do. So we're, I'll equate that with leadership. So he says the first thing in order to be a leader, you must have the desire to lead. You must want to be a leader, hmm. which implies just by very by the letter itself and Paul's language itself that not everybody wants to be a leader, and that's mm-hmm. totally okay. And and wants to be a leader in the ontological sense, but yeah. that doesn't mean that everybody shouldn't need to or want to practice leadership better. Hmm. And. I don't know if this is correct, but didn't you write a book on that? One of your books was called They Were Sent, and is that what that is about, or is that about something else entirely? Yeah, no, that, so that is, I, so I, like I mentioned earlier, I think I've written five books. I know I've written five books. I think I mentioned it earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I've written five books. One of those books is called They Were Sent, and that's the only book of the five that I've written that has a, a faith-based perspective to mm-hmm. it, and it is. That's exactly what... Uh, what in essence it's ultimately about it actually outlines and describes uh, the different leadership journeys of Old Testament characters and how everyone came to practice leadership more frequently or and better uh, because it was they were they felt obligated to do it the classic example is Moses for mm-hmm. example Moses uh, didn't want to be a leader. In fact, at the whole burning bush scenario that you might be familiar with from, and your listeners from, you know, the, the Old Testament there in, in Exodus, you know, when God initially called Moses, Moses didn't want to go. Yeah. He didn't want to do it. And he came up with all kinds of excuses as to why. And then through the course of being pushed uh, by God into a situation, he began to grow in his practice of leadership to where he eventually became an ontological leader, but it didn't, he didn't start out that way. And I think, and that's part of that journey that I think many of us go through. And I do think that most people, when they experience a certain amount or some, some predetermined, I don't know who determines it or how, but there's some threshold of leadership success that usually once it's crossed, uh, the individual then transitions into that ontological leader person themselves, but they don't have to start out that way. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to pursue it if you don't want to. That's not to say that I don't, I believe, that's not to say that you're off the hook if you don't practice leadership behaviors, because I believe that's different. And I do believe everyone has an obligation to practice leadership behavior. So to your question a moment ago, how do I teach people to do that? That's where I start. I start with helping them understand here are typical or common. And again, these are unique to different situations, different people. So it's not like an absolute list. It's a fluid list based on context, based on the individual, based on their experience, based on their geographic location, based on their industry. You know, there are there are generally agreed upon behaviors or skills that leaders do. We start there. And then we grow from there into into that contextually intelligent leader, which to me is the person who can practice leadership in multiple settings, in multiple industries, in multiple geographic locations. And they can, because they learn how to discern and understand the environment, they learn how to discern and understand the needs of the people they're leading and the motivations we talked about, those intrinsic mm-hmm. motivations. And they learn how to read and discern what those are with different people. And now all of a sudden they find that their leadership is growing. And now they're a leader everywhere that they are. 
um, because it's who they are. And they've transitioned from that competency-based leader to an ontological leader. Hmm. And you wrote a book about that as well called Contextual Intelligence. I did. That's and my favorite one. That's your favorite one. Okay. And um, before we talk about that book, I am also a writer, and I actually don't know much about your whole writing process. So what is the writing experience like for you? And I know we write very different things. I write mostly based in fiction, and you write business books, even though you've said a couple times you would like to write a fiction book at some point. Right. What is your writing experience like? Yeah, so that's a key distinction there, because there is a distinction between uh, technical writing and creative writing or mm-hmm. scholarly writing and creative writing. So I'm definitely in the scholarly technical writing space. You're more in the creative writing space and that definitely is a different process. But I think the writing journey in and of itself can is similar. Uh, for me, it was very uh, painful and stressful. It was... Um, I didn't get a lot of good feedback initially, especially when you start writing scholarship you know, in, in higher academics, higher education, in the academy, um, people are particularly brutal. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and your peer reviewers uh, look at you not as a way to help you. They're generally looking at you as competition. Mm. Uh, whether right or wrong isn't the case. I know other people haven't had that experience, but mostly, like I said, 20 years, tenured professor, I've been in a lot of review committees and written, you know, all the policies and procedures for tenure and promotion. And I can just tell you from experience firsthand that it might not supposed to be supposed to be that way, but it is that way. Hmm. So because of that, uh, my entry into writing was particularly painful because I just got horrific feedback and to the point where people were saying, who does this guy think he is? This is anything but scholarship. And he, you know, it was just horrible. It was, it was very demoralizing. Um, but once, but I learned and that's the thing I was committed to it because that was my job and career. I had to, had I not been in academics, I would have quit hmm. and not did it. But because if I wanted to continue to get raises and promotions and whatever, I had to learn the skill. So I did. That was uh, for journal writing. Then all of a sudden I had this idea of starting to write books, which is even different, even more different than journal writing and and writing for professional scholarly journals. And um, so the first thing I went into was I had to hire an editor, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a... um, you know, an admission of defeat, I think. At least it was (laughs) for me, uh, because, you know... By this point in my career, I actually was an editor of a journal, and now I'm the editor of two journals, and I've edited textbooks for other authors for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, for example. I, I authored a musculoskeletal um, assessment textbook. Yes. So I do a lot of uh, editing, uh, but yet when I wanted to write my business book on contextual intelligence, I couldn't connect with my audience. And the first thing my editor said to me uh, when she sent me back the first draft, which was, you know, you talk about being red, red inked up. It was, it was embarrassing, but <laughs> she was like, this is way too academic. Your readers won't get it. You have to, she, she, she goes, I hate to say it this way. Cause I know it's could be offensive, but you have to dumb it down. Hmm. You know, it's, it's way too academic, way too many words, way too many big, you know, so, so I had to go back and, and do that. That was very painful for me. But again, I learned how to do it, and I'm much better at it than now, to the point where when I train my young, my students and my young writers, I make them do two different assignments. So they have to write 
the formal scholarly assignment, right? So let's say I'm write, making them write a paper on an entrepreneurial project that they want to do uh, in class uh, or some idea or concept. So they have to write an academic paper on their topic area, which includes proper citations and formattings mm-hmm. and all that stuff that you would expect in a, in a professional scholarly journal. But then I also make them take that same manuscript and write it in a blog style for a hmm. blog on a website on LinkedIn, which is a completely different, usually it's a 2000 word article and I make them write a 300 word blog on the same topic just so they can learn to communicate in both spaces and what needs to be said for an academic audience and how you can take the same thing and say it for a general audience. And I, and they, you know, they hate it, but they actually really appreciate that later on. And it's one thing I wish I would have had early on as well. Makes sense. So we were talking about your book and how your favorite book is contextual intelligence. And so where does that come into the mix in the whole leadership? How do you become contextually intelligent? Well, it came into the mix with this, with my dissertation. So again, it's a scholarly work that kind of spun off into uh, this professional writing space. But before you say that, it actually originated in church, right? The whole idea. Yeah. So it's, you know, I actually started the, the notion of the idea occurred as I was teaching a course, a Sunday school class. And, um, and we were talking about transition. You know, I was teaching a Sunday school class on King David and King Saul and the transition uh, between the two kingdoms and how there was a point in the Old Testament in the book of Chronicles where, where um, the sons of Issachar came to David to help with this transition. Among others, they weren't the only ones that came. There was a, a whole group of people that came. Um, of the group, there was a, a subgroup called the sons of Issachar who helped make that transition for David. Uh, and, and what the sons of Issachar were able to do that the others couldn't do or didn't do was discern the times and know what to do. So I was actually giving a, a Sunday school lesson on that issue, and it was during that class that I used for the first time uh, contextual intelligence, which was, for me, something that I thought I had coined. I had never read or heard of the concept anywhere before that time. So I, you know, what's often true, you know, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and I actually was audacious enough and 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 brash enough to believe that I had coined a term for the first time on my own and came up with a brand new original idea. And of course, in hindsight, as I studied it out and and moved in that space and went in that direction, uh, other people had used that term before me. Um, And they meant it a little bit differently than I meant it and used Mm -hmm. it. And so since then, I've been able to define it and scope it. And so I actually used the term then. It just so happened when I was teaching that that Sunday school class, I was working on my dissertation. Hmm. And so it's in that space that that kind of how it overlapped together. And I was able to classify contextual intelligence as one of the markers of success, leadership success, uh, that's practiced. Very neat. Very neat. Well, we are almost running out of time. Um, but one last question. Um, I asked, how contextual intelligence fits into leadership and you kind of answered that and you answered the origin but is there any final comments that you would make on the importance of leadership and contextual intelligence together that the everyday person could incorporate into their lives sure so you know we talked earlier about being a leader 
And whether or not you want to be or think you are is a different issue for, for now you can grow into that. But no matter where you're at in your leadership journey, one of the things that you can do to begin to be better at leadership is practice contextual intelligence. And ultimately, the easiest way and the best way to begin to practice contextual intelligence right now that can make your leadership better is practice what I call 3D thinking or three-dimensional thinking, which is integrating simultaneously hindsight, insight, and foresight. So the thing I would tell your listeners, if you want to start being a better leader and practicing contextual intelligence right now, no matter where you're at, is when you make a decision or when you're considering a decision, make sure that you consider the relevant aspects of the past that affect that decision and your in your understanding of it, relevant issues in the present moment that are affecting it and influencing it, and your anticipated future or the, your foresight. What do you want to be in the future and how can all, th- all three of those time orientations need to be consulted before you execute a decision. And if you do that, the likelihood of making a better leadership decision is much higher. Can you give a personal example of how that's played out in your life at all? So, yeah, for me, you know, it's, it's you know, raising kids, having a good marriage, my own career, you know, and, and different opportunities that come up. I try to specifically go back and, and practice hindsight. So what I do with hindsight, how that works and how I, how I apply it in my life is I ask other people who were involved in the situation or the memory that I'm calling on to help me you know, make the decision. Because every time we make a decision, we call on memories mm-hmm. to, in, to, to feed those decisions or to reinforce them or to avoid, you know, do or avoid certain things. So if I'm using a certain memory, I go back and I make sure that, that my recollection of that memory is correct. In other words, do the uh, did the other people in that memory walk away with the same lessons that I did? Did they observe and notice the same things I did? That's very, very important in accurately using hindsight. So I'll do that often. I'll go back and ask people, hey, remember when? And then how, what did you take away? How did I learn? You know, so that I make sure I have the, a better perspective. And then I do the same thing with the future, you know, foresight. All right, so let's talk about this. How, how is it that you... you um, see the future or incorporate these ideas. And, and I know we're out of time, so I don't want to go on too much longer, but that's, you know, not a specific example, but it's a specific technique that I use. And, and it, I want you to notice something in that technique and that it always involves bringing in other people. Hmm. Truly, con- a truly contextually intelligent person, or what I would call just a wise leader in general, will always bring in the input from other people to help make sure they have the widest perspective they can have. Awesome. Very cool. Well, how can people find out more about you? Where can they go to find out more about you? So two things. You can go to uh, Florida International University's website and just Google the Doctor of Athletic Training Program. Or you can also go to my own website. It's MatthewCoots.com. MatthewCoots.com. And are you on social media anywhere? And I'm on Twitter, yeah, at, at Dr. Matt Coots is my Twitter feed. I have think it's the same on Instagram and LinkedIn. Awesome. awesome. And he also has a TED Talk that you can find. What yep. was the title of your TED Talk? So the t- title of the TED Talk is TEDx Talk on uh, how the Vulcan death grip changes everything. How the Vulcan. We are big dorks here. 
So I thank you guys for listening today. Thank you, Dad, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I loved it. Absolutely. And we'll see you guys next week.